0: We are live. We are live. This is the first initial brand-new launch podcast of Gonzarilla, music, movies, comedy and uh, excessive consumption, if we can get to that. I wanted to back announce what you just heard. That was a band out of Silver Lake, California called "Super Bean," and the song is called "Fuck Youth." And Steve Moore Marco, the guy who wrote that song, assures me he has nothing against youth. he just doesn't like kids. Anyway, next week, Steve's going to be on the show, and we're going to be talking about uh, his new life. He moved out of Southern California right around the time the pandemic hit, and uh, he's living in an undisclosed location that uh, we're going to see if we can have him disclose on our show, but as we start today's very first podcast, my guest is someone who would be very familiar to people who worked in L.A. in the 90s in music, in retail, for the labels. And uh, he's been a buyer at multiple uh, large corporations, including Virgin Megastore, where he was the head DVD buyer. I want you to welcome Bob Bell.
1: Hey, Brian, what's up?
0: How you doing, buddy? How, I got to ask you the standard question everybody asks right now is, how you doing?
1: I'm hanging in there. I I basically live like I'm in quarantine all the time, so I am remarkably unaffected by the whole thing
0: yeah i mean right now uh we have uh, these curfews and we've had uh, the protests and the looting and everything else it's kind of a good time to turtle up and uh, call people up and do these these podcasts because everybody's just kind of hanging out at home
1: yes i I live like a a refugee i'm in a bunker in an undisclosed location
0: I, i want to start this off by saying i saw a podcast that you sent me a link to where a guy was saying how to get into the music business. And I wasn't sure if this was an archive podcast or this was actually um, real time, but um, is there any music business to get into these days?
1: Yeah, that was a question I used to hear a lot in the uh, olden days. How do you get into the music business? I, I haven't heard that question in uh, in decades. I wasn't aware that was still a thing that people asked. Although there is still a thriving music business. It's just a digital business, not an analog business anymore. Can, so can, it's, it's not based on, uh, you know, CDs and uh, radio and all that. It's more about uh, streaming and uh, placement and films and TV. The whole uh, ecosystem is different.
0: The music industry was something that I was a part of. I I worked at the warehouse where you were the, what was your title at the warehouse exactly?
1: Uh, I was the uh, rock new release buyer. Rock
0: new release buyer. I worked there from '92 to '94, and I was the copywriter there. And uh, I met you. Can you describe just what it was like back then in the business as compared to what somebody would think it is now? Uh,
1: yeah, those were the the good old days. You know, I, I I I I wasn't around for all the good old days. I missed all of the uh, hookers and blow in the '70s, <laughs> but. Uh, You know, I got my start in the 80s when there was still a a thriving business of physical media. Uh, You know, the compact disc was just getting off the ground. So uh, record companies were doing great business, you know, reselling old catalog uh, over and over again on CD. And, uh, you know, there was still this great uh, ecosystem of, uh, you know, new artists putting out, you know, new albums in a physical format. And uh, as just, I mean, as the, uh, you know, as a new release buyer, I was the guy, the record companies would come to me and say, hey, here's this new artist, here's what we're gonna do with them. And, you know, they give me their sales pitch and I'd decide what we were gonna do with it in the stores.
0: Well, I know that you were, uh, you say that you were mentored by Violet Brown, who I thought was uh, extremely class act. Can you talk, talk a little about Violet and the relationship that she had with uh, like some of the hip hop acts of the time? Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Violet's a legend. She did on the uh, urban side what I did on the rock side. Uh, So she was, you know, the the queen of hip hop uh, back in the day, you know, because she was a buyer all through like those, you know, early NWA albums and things like that. She's actually thanked on Straight Outta Compton, which, if you ask me, is the greatest rap record ever made. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she, she was incredibly tight with all of those artists she's actually mentioned in one of the skits on an Eminem record uh even bigger than that she's name checked in a prince song there's a prince song that has the couplet make a sound violet brown Huh. so that's great well, does, doesn't get any bigger than that and she yeah she was you know she was incredibly tight with uh all of those huge artists you know i was tight with a handful of nerdy power pop guys but violet was tight with you know the A lot of huge superstars
0: i mean it seemed like the warehouse actually had a certain cache that uh, people like snoop would mention the warehouse and say that uh, i want to thank you know the support i'm getting there so it was more than just a retail outlet uh distributing records there was actually a a relationship and a certain trust would you say with the south bay you know um hip-hop scene and the warehouse it was special
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of that had to do with Violet, but a lot of that had to do with just the business model and where our stores were. You know, we weren't the big stores in the glamorous locations like Tower Records. We had a lot more stores, but they were like the average store in the neighborhood strip mall, which is where the kids who want to buy the hip hop are. You know, they're not all on Sunset Boulevard necessarily. So uh, we had a lot of credibility in that way. And we had A lot of stores in the urban community. We had a store on uh, Rodeo and La Brea in uh, in L.A., which was like the urban superstore. So, you know, we had as an urban store, I think we were unsurpassed. There were a lot of stores competing to be the cool rock store. But as an urban store, we were tough to beat
0: i i just remember the excitement of like you know i would drive i i was living in hollywood and i was driving 25 miles each way to work but i just remember that it was one of the few jobs writing ads for you know i the stuff we would write would get printed in the la weekly and the la times and it was i actually looked forward to the job because i realized at the time that i'm never going to get a gig with this kind of opportunity again and it was it was it was amazing. You just tried to bring everything you could out of every single day and get as much uh, you know as much as you could. And I remember that we did the uh, Snoop Dogg doggy style ad, and I wrote a headline something like his bark is as bad as his bite, or his bite is as bad as his bark. But he had just been arrested for murder, and I remember that the San Diego Union, I think it was a newspaper, said, "How dare the warehouse make fun of the situation?" I of course. I took that clipping and I posted it on my wall. So it was a fun time.
1: Yeah, it was a, a really uh, fun gig. And you know, as as a kid, all I ever wanted to do was buy records. And then as a grown up, I got to buy unlimited records with somebody else's money. And you know, I would, uh, you know, record companies, like I said, they would come in and make their pitch. I got to hear every new release before it came out. Got to see, you know, all the shows. So it was, uh, it, it, it was pretty amazing.
0: There was a very significant thing that happened when I was working there, and that was that the warehouse was the first retail outlet uh, to feature UCDs and to stock UCDs in the stores. And there was a big pushback from a lot of artists who uh, really were upset by that. I I remember we were doing a Howard Stern thing where I wrote some copy for Howard to read uh, just a promo thing, and he just chunked it on purpose. I mean, didn't even try. And... Uh, Linda Southern, who was the great media director at the time, she came into the office and she said, you really want to hear this? And I said, yeah, sure. So she played it and he was like, come into the warehouse and you see this, you see it. And so, I mean, what was that like? And what effect do you think that had on the industry that the warehouse was like out in front doing that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really artists who had a problem with it. With the exception of Garth Brooks, he spoke up against it. It was more, you know, the record companies, obviously they, didn't want used CDs cutting into their new CD business. And ironically, it was record company policies that forced us into that business because uh, it used to be we could return defective CDs to uh, you know the distributor. But at some point, Sony decided, well, since with compact discs, so few of them are defective, they know that fewer than 1% are actually defective. They just decided, well, we'll give you a 1% credit on your invoices hmm. and that should be enough to cover all the defectives and you can just destroy the defectives and, and get rid of them. Well, we weren't going to do that. And we, we weren't crazy about this policy. And we did not want to be stuck with def- so-called defective CDs, which in a lot of cases, maybe they wouldn't play on somebody's player, but they would play on a different player or more often than not, uh, the customers di- didn't like it. So they told us it was defective so they could return it. Hmm. So rather than destroy all that product we said well we'll just sell it as used so yeah sony music forced us into the used cd business and then it started a big war with the the labels
0: what were the initial reactions from the other labels once they realized it did they feel like that their product was you know being quote cheapened even though they were selling new cds for almost twenty dollars uh
1: yeah i mean they don't like anything that's going to cut into their new business so it it started a war with all the labels uh, a number of them announced that they wouldn't give us any advertising dollars which wasn't really legal for them to handle one chain differently than they handle other chains you know we're entitled to some equal treatment so you know it ended up in the courts and the labels eventually lost i mean there's still plenty of people in the ucd business they never managed to uh, squash the ucd business but yeah, it started a big war there for a while.
0: Well, I remember the, uh, the uh, head of our department or the head of uh, our, my particular department, Bruce Jesse, was actually on Good Morning America. It was a big deal. I mean, it, 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 was, it, it sounds quaint now to talk about, but at the time, it was, it was, there were a lot of people really annoyed by it. But you know, in the end, I think it obviously benefited consumers, and it was the reasonable thing to do. The warehouse just took some heat because nobody else was doing it.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I love you CDs and yeah, it's great for the consumer. Uh, but yeah, there was the war that started the one, like I said, uh, Garth Brooks came out and denounced the whole thing because he said, well, you know, the, the songwriters aren't getting paid when you resell this stuff. Well, they got paid the first time out. So I don't know how valid a uh, complaint <laughs> that was, but since he came out uh, with that position, a number of the independent stores staged uh, what they called the Garth Brooks barbecue, where they (laughs) burned Garth Brooks CDs in protest. I
0: always love when any uh, record recording product is burned in a, in a protest Uh, reminds me of the
1: famous Beatles in the sixties. Yeah, It's good for sales. If you burn all the (laughs) records, then people have to go out and buy more of them.
0: You know, I was, I was at the warehouse and we had this little thing once a month or once every few weeks, there was uh, this room called, uh, was it called warehouse U or something?
1: Uh, yeah. Warehouse, Warehouse University. That was where we did all the, the training for store managers. And it was also a big room where we could hold meetings.
0: Right. Right. And we got, we had acts came through there. I remember the cranberries came through there. Um, the first time, I mean, I'd never even heard of them. Did you see them and immediately see, or did you already know of them? Did you see, wow, here's some uh, potential.
1: Uh, yeah, I was, I was a huge fan of theirs. I love that record. I still love their stuff. And, uh, that record they kind of came out of nowhere nobody knew who they were it started to take off for us in uh, Colorado because we had just acquired a chain called Rocky Mountain Records in Colorado that sold sold a lot of very adult leaning singer songwriter kind of music also jam bands and hippie rock a whole different set of music that sells in Colorado that doesn't necessarily sell everywhere so the record started to explode out of Colorado and uh but yeah that was uh a great band, yeah, they came in and played for us, and you know, tons of other acts would, would come in and do little uh, acoustic sets for us.
0: Yeah, and this brings me to my next point, which was one of the most famous incidents. I remember reading about it in Rolling Stone, so it even got national press, but let's talk a little bit about the Depeche Mode in-store that had upwards to, uh, I believe you said at one point, 15,000 people crowding, trying to get into a record store, which I think speaks not only for the uh, popularity of Depeche Mode at the time, but also the impact and the, uh, you know, the effect that the uh, record stores were actually a destination location, literally, in this case.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, Warner Brothers, the label, wanted people around the country and around the world to see how huge Depeche Mode were in L.A. because they weren't necessarily that huge everywhere. L.A. was their best market because of uh, the radio station K-Rock. Uh, You know, and I think around that time they played the Rose Bowl, which was pretty amazing and uh, I'm trying to think that's um, Yeah, so they had come to us and wanted to do this in-store Which we eagerly agreed to and then it uh, spiraled out of control Uh, Yeah, the estimates of the crowd size were as high as 15,000 or more what was and, the store?
0: What was the store capacity? I'm just curious.
1: Oh well, the store capacity is nothing. You know, it was a decent sized store. It was across the street from the uh, Beverly Center oh, yeah, in uh, in in West Hollywood. Uh, but you know, with those sort of in stores, you know, you don't let the store fill up. You uh, let in, you know, maybe you let in 15 customers at a time to get their autographs, and then you usher them out, and then you let in the next 15. So it, there got to be a point where. We couldn't physically get the doors closed between groups because there were so many people pressed up against them. And at some point I look over and I see the band running for their lives, being ushered out like it's a scene from A Hard Day's Night. And at that point I figured I was going to die, you know, being trampled to death by Depeche Mode fans. But now they, they had to pull the plug. The band was ushered out. Uh you know, the, the riot squad was called, there was never a riot, but the riot squad was there to, uh, prevent a riot. And that, uh, resulted in a lot of, uh, political brouhaha, you know, a lot of city leaders were upset about the whole thing. Zeb was like a councilman or something at the time who tried to make a lot of publicity out of it. So, uh,
0: so this yeah, was a was, this was a record signing and a performance, or just a record? Uh, no, signing? no
1: performance. I mean, this was wow. yeah. That many people showed up, showed up just to meet them. Uh, yeah, for them to do a performance would have been next to impossible. But at that location, we did have. I think we had Duran Duran perform at one time. We think we had Go Go's perform there. The Duran Duran had a maybe not quite as big, but they had a similar kind of you know fan base. Uh, you know, young female K Rock listeners. After the Duran. I was One story about the Duran Duran in-store. At the end of the in-store, you know, after everything's done, uh, one of the girls who works in the store comes up to me and asks me if she can have my VIP laminate since I wasn't going to need it anymore. I'm like, sure, here, take it. Hmm. And uh, a minute later, the store manager comes over and tells me, oh, yeah, that girl, she just quit. She got a job at the store like two weeks ago just to get close to Duran Duran. And once it was over, she quit.
0: Just another case of being used by an employee. I can't say. Hey, I gotta I gotta
1: respect that. That that's a true fan.
0: You know, the thing about the thing about the Depeche Mode thing that it's interesting to me is this is pre-internet. So there's not, you know, people on social media saying, hey, get down to that store. You know, there, this is just how did you advertise
1: this? Was this just word of mouth? Well well, what we had was Richard Blade on the air constantly saying, Come on down and meet Depeche Mode, even though by you know, that morning they knew, okay, there's no way anybody who shows up now is ever going to get in because the line's so long. And uh, of course uh, they want, they wanted, you still want to talk up their event. You don't want to have an event and keep it a secret. So uh, yeah, K-Rock was hammering it on the air all day. Come on down. And of course there were people that had been, you know, camped out there for a couple of days already.
0: When I think about Richard Blade and I think about K-Rock, I think he was kind of pre-Twitter because if that guy got into it, the word definitely got out. You know, I, I'm just kind of curious, the day of the day of the event, were you, as part of your job, were you supposed to be there early or were you supposed to be observing this? I mean, who was the point man for the warehouse? Who was the person who said, hey, we got to close the doors? Hey, we gotta- uh, well, well, we
1: had a lot of people. Obviously, we had security. We had people from our marketing department. We had store operations, you know, the store manager and you know, pretty much everybody was involved. You know, I was in the office in Torrance that morning, but then, you know, headed up to the store in the afternoon and I was driving along, uh, I think it was Beverly Boulevard or third, wherever, whichever street, the line stretched down. And the line was like a mile long. And, uh, and we were sending vans with more product from the distribution center to the store all day. Cause, uh, you know, we we couldn't actually, we didn't actually sell 15,000 units because not that many people could get in to buy it, but we probably sold, you know, a few thousand. So we had, you know, sending more product all day long.
0: I, I got to ask you, um, you're a buyer. And is that something that you go to school to study for? I mean, it, how did you get into buying? It's, it's kind of like copywriting. It doesn't seem to have a
1: major in it, or Maybe it does. Yeah, I didn't necessarily set out to do that. I knew I wanted to be... In uh, you know entertainment in some fashion, uh, you know I studied broadcasting at UNLV because I, I grew up in Vegas. It's, I, I started working in a record store when I was in college. Uh, I left for a while to program a local music video TV station in Vegas. There was a brand new UHF station that signed on the air, and they figured the cheapest way to do it was to get their programming for free, which meant just hitting up the record companies for free music videos to play. So I became the music director of that for a while. Eventually, they got out of music and into regular TV like Bewitched and I Dream a Genie, which, you know, I love those shows, but I didn't necessarily want to do that for a living. So that's when I, that's when I packed up and headed for L.A. And, uh, you know, the CD business, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was just getting going at that point. So I got a job in the, the, the home office of, of Warehouse as a uh, assistant CD buyer and kind of worked my way up from there.
0: Cool. You were also a uh, you had a radio show on UNLV radio or something.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I did the, the college radio thing, uh, which was a lot of fun. You know, I did the regular, you know, rock shows. And we also had a college radio comedy show, which probably had like 11 listeners. But, you know, we thought we were pretty hilarious. I don't know if anybody else did. But, uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun.
0: Well, coming okay. When you got to LA and you came out here, um, did you want to be in the entertainment business? You feel like this was the 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 headquarters or or the place to go, or is it was it?
1: uh... Oh yeah. Well, I definitely wanted to be where the action was uh, musically. You know, when I was growing up in Vegas, it was still it was still a small town in the middle of the desert, with you know the closest other major city is like five hours away. So, you know, we didn't get all the cool bands. I got to see, you know, some good rock shows as a kid. But, uh, you know, Vegas was not the center of that. It wasn't until years later when Vegas had venues like, you know, the, the Hard Rock Hotel and things like that for bands to play at and got to be a much bigger city. Then, of course, everybody played Vegas. But when I was growing up there, if I wanted to see Elvis Costello or Neil Young or David Bowie or something like that, that meant piling in the car and driving to LA because those bands didn't play Vegas. So then once I finished school, yeah, I just, I headed for LA because that's where I wanted to be.
0: I mean, let me ask you a question about rock and roll. Do you think that it is permanently done? Do you think it's a permanently sort of a a retro movement or do you think there's any chance that it could come back?
1: Uh, you know, I, I, I don't claim to be on the cutting edge enough to know the answer to that. I mean, rock and roll is still going to be around, but it may not be, the central defining thing of our musical culture, like it was in the sixties or seventies, you know, now it's hip hop and pop and lots of other kinds of music and country. Uh, You know, rock and roll is going to be around, but I don't see any rock acts that are going to, you know, galvanize all the fans, you know, like, and, you know, be household names like they were, you know, in the sixties and seventies.
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting that that K-Rock just changed uh, program managers or program directors. Kevin Weatherly, who was there for 28 years, uh, left, and they're revamping all their programming. A lot of their studies were showing that uh, classic alternative rock songs were just not doing well. We're not not getting uh, audience response. I think uh, Nirvana's uh, Come As You Are was ranked 188 or something on their list, and yet... You know, you see this guy Post Malone, and I saw his concert, which pretty much blew me away. I, I thought it was amazing, his online uh, Nirvana tribute. Post Malone is getting big hits, do, or big, you know, big uh, reaction doing Nirvana songs. But the, uh, you know, classic alternative bands are, are sort of dying off. So I kind of got the feeling watching Post Malone that this guy probably came up in a rock and roll environment.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. He's definitely got some some rock roots. I've seen an ancient clip of him uh, covering Bob Dylan even. Wow. But yeah, well, yeah. when I read about the changes at K-Rock, at first it made me sad, but then I realized, you know, things have to change and, you know, nobody wants to listen to the same Red Hot Chili Peppers song over and over again. So they, they should mix it up. What is your beef with the Chili Peppers? I mean, I think I know, but why
0: don't you just go ahead? And oh, no, me? I mean, they,
1: they, they, made, they made some good records and they were fun, but they just got so overexposed throughout the 90s and beyond. And if you listen to K-Rock a few years ago, they were still playing the hell out of those same songs over and over again. Uh, you know, I, I was a fan back in the old days. Uh, although when I was working for the, uh, the TV station in Vegas, uh, there was, you know, the music video station. Um, we put the chili peppers on for a live interview and this was a long, this was the first album. So nobody really knew about them. We didn't know that you don't put flea on live television. No one, <laughs> no one knew that yet because pretty much the first thing out of flea's mouth is Fuck!
0: I got a flea story. I was down at uh, Lollapalooza 92 and uh, a mutual friend of ours, Carlos cake Nunez, who, uh, was a writer for Flipside at the time and knew just about everybody, including Kurt and Courtney. Uh, and uh, we were down in Anaheim after the show, and uh, we got into an elevator with Kim Thale of Soundgarden, and we went up to a party, uh, and it was just amazing. And I remember coming back down the elevator, I got on the elevator, and Flea was on there, and he was with an entourage of uh, several handlers. And I was, had a few drinks, so I just felt like fucking with him. And I said, hey, I hear Pearl Jams in the hotel and they're up on the top floor. And he just goes into one of those things where his face contorts into a giant blowfish. He goes, ah,
1: motherfuckers are all sucking each other's dicks up there, motherfuckers. You know,
0: just absolutely loses it. And he had to be escorted off, the, uh, off of the uh, elevator. But yeah, I, I'm not a big Chili Peppers fan. I, I really liked when Hillel Slovak was in the band. I, I thought they were a totally different band under the bridge. I think I heard it maybe 2000 times too many, but
1: Uh, yeah, that was a great record in its time. But when, yeah, when you've heard it a thousand times on K rock, it gets a little old.
0: You know, it's one thing to be a buyer. That's a clinical analytical thing where you're, you know, you're, you're working off demographics and stuff, but there's also the part about it. That's the passion part of it. And talk about the artists that still excite you, the artists that, You know, we both, I know we both love Neil Young and we both love Bob Dylan, but go ahead and feel free to plug who, who are your favorite, favorite artists?
1: Uh, Well, if my, my holy trinity is Elvis Costello, Neil Young and David Bowie. And, you know, those are artists that I'm still excited about. Bowie's not making any new records, unfortunately, but you know, I'll, I'll still go see, you know, Elvis or Neil whenever they play. I still worship Dylan. Uh, he's got a new record coming out later this number, month. He
0: had a number one single, right? Not too long ago? Uh,
1: yes, which tells you a lot about the changes in the record business. He has a number one single because so few singles are sold that uh, <laughs> Bob default. Dylan Bob Dylan, can have the number one single. And that was with a 17-minute long song, wow. which is actually really amazing. If you haven't sat down and listened to it, I urge everybody to do so. I, I love it. I think it's great. I've heard... A, maybe they've put out three or four songs from the album so far. First couple of tracks I really liked. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So I still, I still can get excited about a Dylan record. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, uh, you know, nerdy power pop acts and things like that, 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 I, that I love, that I will still, uh, you know, go out and see live or seek out their, their music. Um, one of the, there are a couple of shows that I had tickets for, before the big uh, the big lockdown came, one was the uh, tribute to Kim Shattuck from The Muffs show, which would have been a lot of fun, and uh, the other one was a reunion of 2020, the great LA power pop band from the 70s and 80s. Uh, so I don't know if either of those are going to get rescheduled, but those those are the kind of things that ordinarily would have got me out of the house. Um, I, I've an interesting question i 've saw posed I think somebody posted this online was uh you know who was the last artist that you saw before the lockdown like if if we never got out of lockdown, what would be the last concert you ever saw for me, it would be my old buddy, uh, Bill Lloyd from Foster and Lloyd. He's kind of a Nashville power pop institution. I saw him play at uh, the end of February. It was the night after the Big Wild Honey Benefit show, which featured Bill and a bunch of other artists. I didn't make it to the Big Wild Honey show, but then they did this smaller show the next night at Molly Malone's. So I went to check that out. And yeah, if, if there's never any more live music, Bill Lloyd will be the last thing I ever see, which is cool with me because Bill's awesome.
0: You know, Power Pop is... Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a Power Pop fan. I mean, I liked, I loved the Plimsolls and I actually wrote a uh, review, a live review of them for BAM, which was uh, a magazine, Bay Area Music. I think that was the official name of BAM. But I was a big fan of theirs. And uh, I remember the song 20, uh, Yellow Pills by 2020. It was a great, great hook on that. You've been uh, friends with Nina Gordon of Veruca Salt. And I think they're one of the most underrated bands. I think they absolutely kicked ass live in the 90s. Um, do you oh, think yeah. of, and
1: and they were gonna they were gonna play that Kim Shattuck benefits, so that's one of the sad parts about missing that. But may, maybe something will get rescheduled at some uh, time in the future.
0: Yeah, I had tickets for that too, and and I feel sorry for uh, for Melanie uh, Melanie who was putting it together because the timing just sucked. I mean, it was just horrible. It was just ready to go, and then she had to pull it. But it, the thing about power pop is, would you agree that it it's not really a genre a genre that uh, that does any kind of metamorphosizing or age, you know, it's kind of ageless. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah. It, yeah. It, it doesn't, I mean, there, you know, new acts come along, but nobody's reinventing the wheel. And if they do, then they're probably not really power pop. Cause you know, power pop is all beetle influenced, you know, it all comes from Bad Finger and the Raspberries and Big Star. So everybody's trying to, you know, pay homage to that era. There's still a lot of cool bands that come along, and it has its little hardcore cult following. Um, so I'm uh, proud to be part of that cult.
0: What's Matthew Sweet doing these days? Still out there touring? Or?
1: Uh, he's, well, still he's not makes, touring, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was. I think he was supposed to be touring uh, not too long ago. But uh, yeah, he still, uh, you know, cranks out a new record every now and then. and will go out and tour. Um, he's a lot bigger in the Midwest, you know, than he is here. You know, he's big in... Uh, that kind of meat and potatoes, rock and roll country. He recently moved uh, back to Nebraska from LA. So he's more likely you'll see him in the Midwest than see him out here, but uh, he's still doing it.
0: Something I need to do, which I should have done about 10, 15 minutes ago, since this is my first podcast, is I need to sort of uh, keep the audience refreshed on who I'm talking to. And I'm talking to Bob Bell, who uh, has been in the music business for years and years and years. And uh, was a buyer at uh, major retail corporations, including the warehouse and also Virgin Megastore. Uh, what do you think about uh, the way th- the music industry right now, obviously, is, is nobody can really make any money at it other than, like you were saying, branding or using it with uh, TV commercials and stuff. Is it, what's vinyl right now? I mean, I know it, was, it made a big comeback. Is it still increasing or is it sort of leveled off?
1: Uh, Vinyl is still increasing, you know, you have to be careful about not believing everything you read in the consumer press and, you know, Rolling Stone or wherever, because a lot of these stories about the music business are kind of lazy where they just like to report that, you know, vinyls exploding and CDs are in the toilet. And if you actually look at the numbers, still CDs sell twice as many units as vinyl but vinyl's starting to catch up in terms of dollars because vinyl's incredibly overpriced. You know, it, even even a, a reissue on vinyl of some you know classic rock record might cost you twenty five dollars or more, whereas you can probably buy the CD for twelve to fifteen dollars. So you know, there's there's still a, a a decent CD business out there. It's not you know it, it's the, the death of the CD has been uh, greatly exaggerated.
0: Who who buys CDs? Is it basically country country music fans and older fans?
1: It, it's probably uh, old classic rock guys like me. Uh, you know, there's still a, a good uh, business for, you know, reissues and things like that. You know, if you're going to do some sort of, you know, comprehensive reissue with a bunch of bonus tracks, that may not do as well on vinyl. You know, vinyl, they might reissue the original album, you know, as it was back in the day. But the the one with all the bonus tracks, that's going to be the CD version. So I think yeah, uh, you know, there's a certain hipster appeal to vinyl where it's right, cool right. to have around. But, you know, I want to have all those extra tracks that are on the CD that might not be on the vinyl. I want to be able to digitize them to my iTunes. I want to be able to listen to them in the car. All those things that you can't really do. With uh, with vinyl, something that sort of illustrated the the place that vinyl seems to occupy in our culture. I've noticed a couple times recently on these uh, like home fix-it and remodeling shows that you'll see on HDTV or wherever. (laughs) You know they'll be showing oh here's this you know beautiful lavish living room and I've got these jazz records over here. You know you have to have Kind of Blue or something like that on on Blue Note and then they put the record on and you can see on TV that the record is super warped, like so Mm, warped you can never play it. But, you know, still, they think they're cool because they have this warped record. I'd rather have a CD that's not warped and I can actually hear it without the pops and scratches than have the vinyl that's going to make me cooler.
0: And you don't have to get up and preen the freaking thing every uh, 15 minutes and uh, clean off the the needle and everything. When CDs came out, I was... You know, there was this whole argument that CDs don't have the, the warmth of vinyl and the vinyl might sound quote a little bit warmer, but I always thought that was bullshit. I always thought CDs were fine. I never had a problem with them. I thought they were they were just way overpriced and that's why I would go to places like uh, you know, Aaron's and stuff like that to to get most of my stuff. What, what's the latest on Amoeba? Do you know if they're still going to uh, relocate? Or?
1: Uh, yeah, Amoeba announced that they're not going to reopen in the old location because they were planning to relocate in the fall anyway. And with the whole quarantine lockdown, they did the math and realized, well, there's no point in reopening here since we're just going to have to pack up and move right after we reopen. So they decided, uh, and and everything has been packed up and moved now. If you go by there now, it's an empty building and they're working on, on their new location on Hollywood Boulevard, which will open later this year. Uh, back to the, the, the conversation about CDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was one of those nuts who bought the first CD player that came out in 1983, because I kind of, you know, as a fan in the very early 80s or late 70s, I kind of knew the CD was coming. I knew something was being developed.
0: Where did you get and- a CD, CD player in 1983?
1: Well, that that's when they were first introduced in the U.S. was eighty three. That's when the wow. first uh, CDs started to be issued. I was working in a record store at the time. Uh, I didn't have a lot of money, but I was completely obsessed. So I went out and bought the Sony CDP one hundred and one. That was the first model at the local high end uh, audiophile store. With Nevada sales tax, it was nine hundred fifty one dollars and seventy five cents. Huh. But I was obsessed, and I had to have it. Uh, a while before that, I started buying. Discs already with the idea that well once I have about a half a dozen discs then I'll go buy the player because I didn't want to have a player and one. I was going to
0: ask you did they were there was there even product uh, a CD product out in Uh, yeah there was
1: there were a few things in early eighty three that you could get as imports and uh, the American record companies started putting out like Sony put out a pre pack of maybe a dozen titles in early eighty three and I was working in a store at the time so I knew exactly what was coming out and when so I could start building up my collection. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was an interesting, uh, launch to, to witness.
0: Yeah. I think one of the cool perks that you had back at the, back at the warehouse when we were working together was the, uh, photo ops. I mean, your photo ops are legendary. And, uh, as a copywriter, I never got to meet all these great bands. I was sort of like, I remember the, uh, Madonna print ad that we did, uh, for, um, erotica. I believe it won the Narm award for best, uh, retail newspaper print in 1992 and and i wrote that ad and
1: i didn't well, even know congratulations about it. on that
0: i didn't even know about it <laughs> uh my well, boss you know it
1: depends on what you're about like warehouse one retailer of the year one year at the narm convention when it was in la and theoretically i was supposed to be there for that but i was actually i was actually in a club i was at largo listening to suzanne vega play songs from her new album which mm. i thought was kind of fitting that when we were you know, the rest of the gang was up on stage getting their award. That I was in a club listening to new music.
0: I mean, there's a great picture of you with the guys in Big Star. What was that? What was that all about?
1: Uh, that was their their first reunion that they did in Columbia, Missouri, in uh, the early '90s. And uh, the folks at Zoo Records were nice enough to invite me at the time. Um, so yeah, I got to go, and it was. I thought beforehand, oh, big star reunion. This is going to be the hugest thing ever. And all the who's who a Power Pop's going to be there. It was them playing in a tent in a parking lot at the, at the college there. Mm-hmm. And that's very much in fitting with what their their whole way of life was. They, I, I remember uh, Alex Chilton being asked in interviews, well, why hadn't you uh, reunited up until now? And he said, well, nobody asked us. So, you know, just, uh, some college radio station said, hey, you want to come play for us? And, and they did.
0: I've heard some recordings from that reunion and it sounded pretty good, actually. Um, they, uh, oh, yeah. We
1: had, yeah, Zoo put out a, a live album from it, which is a lot of fun. And, you know, for years after that, they toured with, uh, you know, the two guys from the Posies and, uh, and the surviving members of, of Big Star.
0: Uh, I got to ask you, because you have a fairly thriving business uh, in the collectibles market and uh, you've got an eBay uh, website that... Uh, uh, does a lot of business. Uh, can you talk about uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you is the same thing I wanted to ask um, Carlos uh, Cake was: uh, Do you have just an inexhaustible supply of uh, product that that you can market up there? Where do you, where do you get all your shit? I mean, how how do you do it?
1: I, I suppose theoretically I should be running out one of these days, but I just spent you know I've been collecting music since the '70s, and you know i've got so much stuff that i was privileged to uh, get a hold of while working in the industry and you know at at some point in my 40s i had an epiphany of you know what i've spent 40 plus years amassing more and more stuff i'd like to spend the next 40 plus years whittling it down to less and less stuff uh, making my hoard a little bit more manageable so that uh, occupies a lot of my time now trying to uh, find new homes for a lot of the stuff that I've accumulated and uh, you know, I don't want to be a slave to my stuff like somebody on one of those hoarders TV shows.
0: Right. Right. Well, <clears throat> I remember um, Carlos had a deal where Amoeba when they were first, uh, when Amoeba was first coming together and, you know, they were spending a lot of time putting together products and people were wondering if they were ever going to open. He actually was courted by the uh, record store and they had guys come over look at his collection. He says that he was offered uh, 30 grand, for his stuff. So there is money to be made.
1: Uh, in, oh, yeah, uh, it's, that, that's very possible. I noticed there was some record store, maybe the record parlor just advertised that they just acquired a, a, a complete collection from somebody who worked for a Tower in like the 70s and 80s. And uh, yeah, some of these stores will buy complete collections, you know, whether it's Amoeba or Freakbeat Records in Sherman Oaks here, which is uh, one of my favorites, or uh, Rockaway in Silver Lake stores will buy whole collections.
0: And your market is, is basically, uh, would you say older guys, younger guys? Is it very all over the place? No,
1: I wonder a lot about who are these people buying my stuff? I would assume <laughs> a lot of it's, you know, old collector geeks like me that it's just moving around from one collector to the other. But uh, yeah, who knows uh, who's out there buying this stuff.
0: And I got to ask you, because because this has been a topic of discussion, I don't expect you to um, go on the record in any way about this, but um, you've been talking about uh, possibly moving back to uh, Vegas. Is that something that uh, you think is going to happen, or is it something that...
1: Uh yeah, it's something I've always uh, thought about, you know, that maybe one day I would end up uh, back in Vegas, and, you know, I have a place here in the Valley, and I kind of do the math in my head all the time of, well, let's see, if I uh, sold this place, I could buy something in Vegas for half the price. So that might happen one of these days. It, uh, it would be a, a fun new adventure to go and rediscover the old hometown. You know, I still get back there often enough to visit, but it's so different now that it would be kind of the best of both worlds, that there's a, some of the old Vegas there, but then a whole new Vegas to go and and rediscover. So that that might be an, an adventure that is in my future.
0: Have they opened the strip back up or is it still shut
1: down? It opened today. Open it today. Op- it, it opened at midnight last night. They reopened the casinos, or at least most of the casinos. So you'll see a number of stor- stories in the, uh, in the press today about how that's going, what sort of different safeguards are they taking, you know, every other machine is gonna be deactivated and you know, lots of different precautions like that that they're taking.
0: Yeah, I, I've played uh, the World Series of Poker there a couple times, and I've been out to Vegas probably fifteen times, just to uh, just to to archive, take photos at the WSOP. And I'm just wondering how they're going to uh, take a game like poker, where everyone's crowded together at a table, and I've seen some of these uh, plexiglass screens that look absolutely ridiculous. But yeah, it's uh, you got to feel for a, a city that p- bases its uh, income on tourism. When you shut down a place like Vegas, the tourism industry there is is huge yeah.
1: well I think and I think there's a lot of people who are eager to get back out into whatever it is restaurants or casinos uh, you name it and you know for the time being, things are going to be a little bit different, but you know maybe we'll find out some months from now that you know there's enough herd immunity as they say that you know enough people are immune, that we can start to do more, you know, concerts and gatherings like that, and things will get a little bit more back to normal, although I think, you know, a lot of things are going to change, you know, more or less permanently, that you'll see a lot more face masks on uh, public transportation, you know, whether it's the subway or an airplane or, uh, you know, people with masks in in the supermarkets, things like that. That wouldn't be such a bad thing. And I think we can all agree it's time to do away with the handshake. The handshake is ridiculous. Yeah, I got rid of
0: that that a long time ago. My feeling was uh, that, um, you know, I can remember it reaching the apex uh, about uh, two years ago, I was at a show and it was just a procession of dudes walking through the club and they would just walk up to you. You Couldn't hear anything anybody was saying so loud and they would just take out their hand and shake your hand and they just move on to the next guy. And I said, "I I don't see this purpose you know, uh in in exchanging handshakes with somebody who's not even gonna have a conversation with me. So I think the handshake is uh you know, I've been doing the elbow bump for a long time. But um w- when they first announced that they weren't gonna be having any more concerts, the first thing I thought of was Coachella and those like rave tents in there where the people are like crushed in. I don't think that's gonna be happening again anytime soon.
1: Yeah, I don't know how they'll manage things like that. But again this 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 may not be a permanent change again if if there's you know, some months from now, a vaccine or herd immunity, whatever the data tells us, we may be able to loosen things up again.
0: I want to give you one last chance. Go ahead and tell me your favorite Spotify playlist that you put together, because you have quite a cottage industry in Spotify playlists.
1: Uh, Well, my my Spotify username is uh, VegasBob3000. Okay. 3000, of course, an homage to Mystery Science Theater 3000. And Vegas, of course, homage to my hometown. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've always just loved you know everything about music. I love listening to it. I love buying it. I love selling it. I love collecting it. I love sharing it with my friends. And uh, Spotify is a really fun way to to share playlists with your friends, and everybody can use it since it's free. It's not like you have to sign up for anything special or pay anything for it. So. Uh, you know, I've got, I've made playlists of lots of my favorite artists, if you want to listen to my favorite, you know, Dylan or Neil Young tracks or something like that. And for, you know, some of my favorite genres, like, you know, my classic alternative playlist is, you know, those, uh, you know, early K-rock type artists, uh, a lot of uh, Psychedelic Furs and R.E.M. and Echo and the Bunnyman and uh, all those sort of things. Uh, But one of my great masterpieces, which would be a guilty pleasure for some, but I'm not guilty. I will embrace it. My soft rock of the 70s playlist where you can hear, you know, Smoke from a Distant Fire by the Sanford Townsend Band or, uh, you know, Kenny Loggins or England Dan and John Ford Coley. Is this what they call
0: the uh is this what they call yacht rock or people do
1: call it yacht rock but i i do not embrace the term yacht rock cuz it's it's kind of the same thing there's a lot of overlap there but i i think yacht rock is kind of uh, you know a demeaning uh, cliche i'm not all about the yacht rock although there's it, this music is very popular now to the extent where there's a ton of different yacht rock bands out playing these songs in, in clubs so it's nice to see that you know, some of this music is getting rediscovered, even though I, I refer, to, just refer to it as the you know the soft rock as opposed to the uh, pigeonholing it as yacht rock.
0: Well, listen, I uh, enjoyed talking to you, and uh, it's it's really interesting to see just the the changes that have happened to the music industry and this new reality that we're in, but that the love of the music, the passion, the the devotion to it, the, I think I read an interview where you said, you know, the first time you hear a song, you know, remember those days when you would pull over to the side of the road and just like listen to the radio and just like, wow.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the love of music is still there. And, you know, with streaming now as much music as being consumed as ever it's just being consumed in a different way
0: i just hope we can get back to to live music and uh you know i'll wear a freaking gas mask if i have to but uh, i do miss uh do miss uh, certain clubs and going to certain shows that yeah, is the
1: reality we have to make the mask part of the business model there should be cool rock and roll masks that you can wear to the club or you know clubs should have uh, you know best mask contests and you know embrace <laughs> the mask
0: Anyway, listen, I've um, been talking to Bob Bell, and uh, this is Gonzarilla. It's Gonzarilla, music, movies, comedy, and excessive consumption. Anyway, Bob, thanks for being here. And, thanks for uh, having me. All right. I, I appreciate you being here on the uh, initial launch, and uh, I've got a long way to go to catch up to Joe Rogan, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be trying. Anyway, have a good one, man.
1: All right. See ya.